the cycling podcast powered by super sapiens energy management for committed athletes and coaches hello and joining you on a seasonably glacial berlin morning my name is daniel freeber I'm currently suffering from COVID. In fact, I haven't told the guests that yet. Um, hence why I've got a touch of the Barry Whites. No, this isn't my first bout. Hopefully it'll be my last and my everything as far as this illness is concerned. That is a Barry White reference. I am the host of this episode of the Cycling Podcast in which we'll be talking about the first three days, three, I think three days of the Tour Down Under and in which two somber bits of news from the last few days, indeed one quite tragic, will give us pause to reflect on and discuss the void which lies beyond life as a professional cyclist. To do all of that, I'm joined by two exceptional guests. The first one is a former rider himself, a veteran of a decade and a half in the pro peloton. He became a professor of life therein and has authored a peer-reviewed study about precisely that field of research, us being his peers and our review being that life in the peloton is a ripper potty, mate. He's also the world of cycling's preeminent ambassador of Luft, the owner of the most lustrous moustache this sport has ever seen. I'm going to stop there because I'm slightly intimidated by this host because he's hosted more podcasts than me. Even more intimidating, he's coming to us from the future. Mitch Docker, it's the evening of January 19th where you are, meaning you've seen things, a time on this planet that I, we have not experienced yet. That feels quite unnerving. How are you, mate? Yeah, well, it's a beautiful evening here. I can tell you the beers are cold. You've got a great evening ahead of you. What is the beer? What is the beer? What can we look forward to drinking in the future? I'm drinking a really crazy beer called a – it's from Bridge Road. Um, These guys brew this beer out of Beechworth, and they've got this beer. I can't remember the exact name, but it's it's a beer that they use like Amaro's. They use the same sort of scents from Amaro's. No hops in it. And they bring the Amaro sort of flavor into it. And, you know, like the you've got the, the the flavors, the spices and everything. And it goes into the beer. It's quite a different beer. I, I'm going to say right now, I wouldn't want to drink many of these, but I'm enjoying this one specifically. I've stolen the glass from the pub that I was in about five minutes ago. We're here at Tour Down Under and, you know, wheels are in motion. This is the Craft Brewing Podcast. No, this is the Cycling Podcast. Um, I better better get on with introducing the second guest before we disappear down that particular alcoholic rabbit hole. He's coming to us from La Masana in Andorra. He is the panda evading winner of two monuments and stages in all three major tours. On February the 12th, he'll be joining Lionel and me at the Podsport Live event at King's Place in London's King's Cross. And I don't know whether he's signed a contract yet, but he may soon be consulting with his lawyers, given what we have planned for him on that day. During the course of his career, he raced in countries as far flung as Japan and Oman, Bulgaria and the USA, but never in Australia, which in typical cycling podcast style made him the automatic choice to talk about the Tour Down Under with us today. He is the podcaster formerly known during our Vuelta coverage, at least as Dan Martin. He is Dan Martin. How are you, Dan? Good, it's snowing a lot for the first time this winter. Uh, so, yeah, watching, but obviously not too dissimilar to Tour de Under with their rain, their unseenable rain the other day that we saw. But uh, yeah, I'm feeling even more intimidated now after this, the start of this podcast. I'm not surprised. Dan, um, how come you never race in Australia? Never. Uh, no trace of any race result in Australia for you. I mean, I just it just never fitted into my program. I mean, it was very, 
it was always very classics focused and it always it like i always saw january as a basically it was well correct me if i'm wrong mitch but the tour down under has become a much more serious competition than it was 10 15 years ago right and it's, it's kind of like it was almost yeah it, it's a it's a very serious race now and the mm. for me the for me it was very much a period of training that was required to be good at the classics january Oh, very much so. And I think this year's edition, and I know we're going to talk about this a bit later on, but let's just look at the first stage and how many crashes there were. That just shows me if the if the season starts like that at the most relaxed race of the year, where are we going from here? And we'll, we'll get into that later on, but very, very, very true, Dan. This is no longer the Tour Down Under where you used to roll your sleeves up, roll the Knicks up, get a suntan, and maybe get sent home from Mike Turner if you weren't doing the right thing. Mitch, one thing that hasn't changed about the Tour Down Under you told us before we started recording is the official song. We talk a lot about official songs. I'm a bit of a, a glutton for the official song at the Vuelta España. Tell us about the official song at the Tour Down Under. Oh, uh, if anyone's out here, they're going to know it. Feel we'll the play rush. it, actually. Wheels oh, in we motion. Don't need to play it. Oh, you don't need to play <laughs> it. I've got a fantastic, beautiful voice. Um, this is a song that has existed, I think, ever since I did it. I know I'm pretty sure it's existed since the first edition of Tour Down Under, the first edition that Stuart O'Grady won, actually. Um, and it's a classic song. It's one of those songs that you sort of – it's one of those songs on the radio that you hate at the beginning. They play it so much that you eventually love it. Um, and it's classic too because it's like – it just works. You're like – how are you down at the tour today? You're like, oh, I felt the rush. Wheels are in motion. They got it. They hit the nail on the head with this song. So anyone who knows Down Under, they will know exactly what I'm talking about. This song See, is around. I I think the same thing. This is my explanation for why the Vuelta España song, why, for instance, last week when we spoke about the Vuelta presentation and we spoke about last year's song, I described it as a banger. Objectively, it's not a banger, but when you are at the Vuelta, racing the Vuelta, I guess, covering the Vuelta, you hear the official song so much that it, it, I think in the end, it alters your DNA. It gets into your cells and it certainly alters your musical taste. And by the end of the race, you think it's, you know, it's, it's worthy of, well, topping the charts, which objectively is probably not the case. Chaps, um, enough nonsense for, well, on, on that particular Subject, we should really get on with the news roundup as ever. A lot to get through this week and um, last few days in professional cycling. Here is a brief summary. Uh, the former Team Sky and British cycling doctor Richard Freeman has lost his appeal against the 2021 decision to remove him from the medical register after he was found guilty of ordering 30 sachets of testosterone gel and having them sent to the National Cycling Centre in Manchester in 2011. In that 2021 tribunal, Freeman admitted 18 of 22 charges against him but denied the central charge about the reason for the tester gel order, i.e. whether it was to dope an athlete. His solicitors argued that the former British cycling coach Shane Sutton was not a credible witness about that matter and that the evidence given by Sutton should hence be dismissed. In his high court judgment, Mr. Justice Fordham said that nothing in the tribunal's approach, reasoning or conclusion was wrong. He also ordered Freeman to pay the General Medical Council's legal fees of £23,000, 
More seriously, certainly as far as we're concerned, is that UK anti-doping can now proceed with an investigation which sees Freeman charged on two counts, namely possession of prohibited substances and tampering or attempting to tamper with any part of a doping control. Uh, Chaps, this is a saga that's been going on for a very long time and what we're left with, or certainly until the conclusion of that UK anti-doping investigation, is, I guess, more questions. It's a significant black mark, I would suggest, on the history of those two organisations, really, British Cycling and Team Sky. Um, Freeman was employed by both. And, uh, uh, well, not only a black mark, but a big question mark, because I'm... don't think we're any closer to finding out who received these doses of testosterone and um, exactly whose performances they might have enhanced. And certainly that's the question that interests most people. Would you agree? I think it's just, it's actually quite unfortunate because as you say, it's uh, the silence is actually causing more damage at this point. I mean, it's uh, obviously there is always the, yeah, this, the, there is no obligation for the medical records to be released from the there's a, there's a privacy thing to be to be, to be understood here but at the same time yeah we don't it's there's so many riders who pass through that system and by not actually being clear on what the gel and obviously there is a legal process coming forward but it's implicating many many more riders and uh, and well it just puts a great big question mark on on the performance of the organization if, it, if there's not that truth being told chaps the uci has made a couple of we're talking about rules rules that in the past i think have been infringed broken uh the uci has made a couple of rules tweaks in the last week that will subtly change how time trials look and are approached by teams in 2023 first change team cars must now remain 25 meters behind their rider during tts the buffer having previously been 10 meters the uci cited aerodynamic studies carried out at the university of eindhoven which demonstrated that a following vehicle at a distance of 10 meters could take a whole second off a rider's time over 20 kilometers. A second, imagine that. The new measure has also been introduced for safety reasons to give the team car driver more time and space to take corrective action should crashes occur. The second rule changes as of now, riders will be split into three height categories and for each of those brackets... There is a different maximum distance between the bottom bracket axle and the end of the handlebars on their bike and between the lowest and highest points of the handlebars. Um, the first the first rule change there, I mean, Dan, you and I have spoken before about the influence of motorbikes on, on road races, but this issue of team cars, this is something that I think people started to become aware of, well, a, a good number of years ago now, that team cars behind riders could also procure advantages for the riders. Um, one second over 20 kilometers is not a lot, is it? But do you welcome this rule change, either of you guys? It's, it's, it's funny, as you say, they seem to be concentrated on more what's behind the race rather than what's in front of the race. And uh, yeah, there's sometimes when the direct the race director's car is closer than 25 meters in front of the peloton. So uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's obviously they're difficult. They're very difficult distances to be able to measure in the in the heat of the action. And how do you how do you punish? I mean, I don't know that it's written in the rules what the punishment is for the team car encroaching on that distance, but um, but yeah, I mean, it's 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 a tricky one. Mitch, any uh, thoughts? Yeah, look, <clears throat> I'm definitely not against that. You know, like I think 
I think we need to keep that there, you know. Well, let's think about the guys at the back, the back of the peloton. That's what we need to worry about. You know, like these guys still need to get through the time cut and things like that. So that's what, you know, that benefit was the car pushing me along. I'm sad to see that disappearing from the peloton, honestly. <laughs> you'd like, ideally you'd like to be in the car. Um, okay, moving on. Um, in cyclocross, it was national championships weekend with none of the cyclocross BGs, as we call them, Van Aert, Van der Poel or Pitcock in action. Uh, I'll just mention a couple more notable results, not, uh, namely Michael van Hurenhout winning Belgium in the men's race and Pock Petersa taking the most hotly contested women's national championships in the Netherlands. As we told you would happen a couple of weeks ago, Astana Kazakhstan have finally announced the signing of Mark Cavendish. Cavendish has signed a one-year contract and will pause briefly just to well just to ask your guys thoughts we had a long conversation about this a few weeks ago about how Astana will have to reinvent themselves slightly to accommodate Cavendish they've never really had a sprinter before do you see them doing that to any great effect or um with any great success Mitch yeah Look, it's really interesting, you know, something we know about Mark Cavendish, obviously he's a well-trained sprinter of all those years, arguably one of the best sprinters in the world. So he knows how to get around the pelts on his own, but we know that he's very good at working with the lead-out train. We've seen it in the past with HCC, Quick Step, obviously of the, of the late, you know, great lead-out men in front of him. I know Astana have signed Case Bowl. He is a sprinter himself. The question may remain, can he drop into a lead-out role? Something that I argue often is that sprinters can't be good lead-out men because they're sprinters because they're sprinters. They know how to win. They don't know how to work for someone else. That's what makes them so special. I could be proved wrong with Case Bowl. He could also slow into that role very well. But I think Mark Cavendish personally needs that right-hand man, the Mark, the Mark Wrencher of the world, the, you know, what we've seen recently with the Michael Morkov. That's what makes him so special, that trust in the guy in front of him. If he doesn't have that in Astana, I just don't think we're going to see the best of Mark Cavendish. I think he'll still be good. Of course, he's the greatest in the world, but we're not going to see the best. I mean, I I don't remember, I don't know whether I mentioned this in the course of that conversation a couple of weeks ago about Cav on the podcast, but I, I in conversations with him over the last few months, he's mentioned the fact that if you don't have a train, that he, he named three riders in the peloton that can do the job of almost an entire lead out and they can sort of fight and scrap uh, their way through a peloton and and they can be a lead out train unto themselves and that is Max Richese who we know he tried to get on the B&B team that he was going to join the French team um, Danny Van Poppel uh, Bora who's under contract and he is going to be working with Sam Bennett again and then Morkov and those three guys Cavendish thought um, would allow you to almost dispense with a lead out train however he's not going to have any of them at Astana so Remains to be seen, I suppose. A question mark there as well. I think the big thing with that that transfer is, and obviously we don't, or neither myself or Mitch have experience with the Astana team, but just speaking from personal experience, the culture shock going to an Italian kind of philosophy team at UAE, it was uh, it took me a while to adapt. And Mark being such the, he's an emotional guy. He's, he's he wears his heart on his sleeve, and they don't react well to like 
showing frustration and getting frustrated. And that's exactly what Mark is when things aren't going right. He has this real flamboyant side. And it's, uh, although that seems very Italian and very, I know it's not an Italian organization, but it is. I was going to say, Dan, Italian working environments um, I've had experience of oh well there's a lot of drama all the time and in fact i would say one of the characteristics of them is that they don't mind drama that italians are constantly living on i i always think that italians thrive in a state of emergency and this is you know you can talk about this in a sort of geopolitical sense as well italy's a country that's almost kind of um it's almost thrived on drama throughout its history so i i would have thought that i wouldn't have so many so many concerns about that side of Astana, it's more the other side. I'm, I'm drawing a strong parallel between the fact that I left Quickstep and went to UAE, which is a very similar mentality mm. to the, 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 the Astana team that, that I'm seeing, you know, and, and I struggled to adapt those first six months. And so it is going to take a period of adapt, adaptation for Cav, for and it depends on his patience as to, as to how, that, how that goes. Last bit of news, Chas. We, as I said earlier, I think we're going to talk about the tour down under in part two. So we're going to round up, finish off the other news of the week. Uh, we and thousands of other dreamers, romantic stargazers, and flaneurs were rocked last week with the news that Thibaut Pino will retire at the end of 2023. We'll talk more about this later in the episode. We will limit ourselves for now to the bare soul-destroying facts, namely that Pino will target the general classification in the Giro d'Italia one last time. Then he hopes to ride the Tour de France, although his Groupama FDJ team manager, Mark Maddio, said that he only found out that Pino wanted to ride the Tour when Pino said it in a radio interview last week. Pino will then close out the season and his career at the Tour of Lombardy, which he won in 2018. Unless, that is, he becomes the French national champion in Cassel on the 25th of June. Yes, because Pino let slip last week that he bet or pledged to his teammates that he would carry on for a few more months if he had the honour of wearing the red, white and blue tricolore jersey. More Pino chat later on, chaps. The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. And now you can wear the Super Sapiens Energy Band, the first and only wearable that can display real-time glucose data directly from Abbott's LibreSense Glucose Sport Biosensor. The Super Sapiens Energy Band is available at supersapiens.com for €159. Our title sponsors, Super Sapiens, are experts in energy management. They work with a number of World Tour teams, including Jumbo Visma and Canyon SRAM. They signed up with Jumbo Visma in August 2020, and the team's head of nutrition, Asker Jurkendrup, says that Super Sapiens is the difference between hoping to fuel effectively and knowing how to fuel effectively. Anyway, Jumbo Visma's season is off to a flyer, with Rowan Dennis winning the second stage of the Santos Tour Down Under. The feedback from the pro teams has helped Super Sapiens and their team of sports scientists learn more about how people respond to food, activity and rest. And in a recent survey, 79% of users said that they had improved their nutrition habits and 72% said they'd seen performance improvements or had set a personal best. 
I've certainly changed a few things about my diet as a result of using Super Sapiens. The type of foods and the times that I eat, especially around exercise, are a couple of things I've tweaked thanks to Super Sapiens, and I feel better. And I'm performing better too, despite being a year older. I'm running quicker this January than I was last. So that bodes well for the 2023 season. To find out more, go to supersapiens.com. The move over to UAE this year. How was the winter? Um, how's the how's the preparation been? And you know, the first race off off the cards. Things are looking like they're going really well. Yeah, yeah, everything's uh, going well so far. Uh, got uh, a bit lucky with the the prologue um, and the timings, but um, yeah, still in pretty good shape for uh, shorter races at the moment. And yeah, it's been uh, a lot slower build up. My coaches had to hold me back quite a lot for the the season to come but yeah looking forward to the rest of this uh down under and also the rest of the year what does the rest of the year look like like you said you're heading from here from down under where are you going to go from here and what are the big goals for you this year personally but also from the team uh personally um i think i've i want to work a bit more on the time trial um you know the initial initial results have been pretty promising but um yeah, the team team wants to see if I can develop into a one-week racer to start with um, and, yeah, see how I go in the Giro as a support rider for uh, Jao. How has the winter been? You said you only got uh, managed to get out a few four-hour rides before the Nationals, but you certainly didn't look like that when you were out there. You look pretty good, ready to rock and roll. It's been a bit slower, has it? Yeah, yeah, a lot slower. Um, yeah, we've... Uh, yeah, I mean, the the Giro being the, the main peak of the season is, you know, not for another three or four months. So, yeah, taking it a lot easier than uh, I normally would. And, uh, yeah, my first Nationals back since turning professional. So, you know, having to sort of put that in perspective of, you know, I still want to do a good performance and race it uh, properly. But, you know, knowing full well that four hours was probably the limit to my uh, capabilities that day. <laughs> And finally, mate, you're feeling like you're at home in the peloton now, um, found your place, feeling comfortable moving around the bunch and, you know, as one, of, as one of the bigger, moving through the peloton as one of the bigger riders, I feel like now. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it also helps when you've got um, UAE on your jersey to, to get around the bunch a little bit. But, um, yeah, I mean, those, those two seasons with Alberson definitely taught me a lot of moving through the bunch and now we're uh, on UAE, you know, following guys like George, you know, he certainly, for a smaller guy, knows how to get around the bunch as well. So, um, yeah, yeah, starting to feel a lot more at home. Well, Mitch, that was you in conversation with Jay Vine, one of the stars of the early part of the Tour Down Under. And indeed, today, the Tour Down Under went a bit crocodile dundee, didn't it? A lot of big Aussies. Um, we're very much at the front of the race. Big Aussie teams as well, Jacob, Simon Yates. Um, but before we get to exactly what happened today and Jay Vine and his prospects for the rest of the week, can you just fill us in on what's happened at the Tour Down Under so far, Mitch? Yeah, look, very un- uncharacteristic of a Tour Down Under this year. We had a really hot week leading into Tour Down Under, so a lot of teams were preparing for the typical hot Tour Down Under because, you know, last week I was here too. It was 35, 38 degrees, and a lot of the teams were suffering with that in their recon runs and things like that. Dramatically, it's dropped to the mid-20s and even lower than that, you know, below 20 degrees. Look, I know to you guys out there in the winters in the world, that sounds beautiful, but when you've had 38 and it drops down to below 20, it feels like winter. It's freezing. So I think that's actually thrown a lot of riders out. Um, 
And the first stage was very uncharacteristic to Tour Down Under. There was a lot of crashes. We've already seen, I think, about eight DNSs and DNF, DNFs coming into stage two. Robert Gessing dramatically crashing and you know breaking his hip. Now again, the question for me remains around: Will he continue on? You know, in this end part of his career, this is a guy who's come back from so much in his career. It's like, what else is he left to draw on? Um, that's the question I have in my mind. And yet there's been another, a lot of other guys, Paddy Bevan, who crashed in the Criterium, which is just supposed to be a warm-up race. And he crashed and ultimately pushed him out of Tour Down Under. As a retired pro, I think in my mind, what a disaster starting the season with a crash. You know, it's happened to me before. I started the season with Cadell Evans' race a few years ago and crashed in that race. And actually remember thinking, God, what a, what a way to start the year. I'm already down day one. So a lot of guys are in that pay, in that book now. And what I spoke to, I just spoke to Jos van Emden yesterday at the start. Um, and he was telling me, this isn't what I imagined with Tour Down Under. This is changing. He goes, if this is already this stressful here, stage two of uh, stage one of Tour Down Under, where are we going from here? This is supposed to be the most relaxed race of the year. And it's obviously going to get much more stressful. Let's think about Paris-Nice. That is the most stressful race of the year. If two and under is already stressful, where's Perinese going to be? Off the Richter scale. All I can say is I'm happy I'm not a pro anymore in that double time. <laughs> we should just say before we go any further, just as far as results are concerned, um, stages of the Tour Down Under so far. So Alberto Betiol won. It was a prologue, not a time trial, wasn't it? It was a prologue time trial. Um, that was very much affected by the wind. Betiol, I guess, was very much favoured by the fact that he went off in drier conditions. Phil Bauhaus won the next stage in a sprint. And then yesterday, today, um, 19th of January, it was, well, it was a bit of a sort out on Nettle Hill is the name of the climb, was it, Mitch? Yeah, Nettle Hill, 2K um, climb with, with, with some steep ramps and at 10% and things like that. And it was Jay Vine who actually kicked things off. Um, and we saw, you know, we saw Jai Hindley drag himself across to him as well. Also, you know, Rowan Dennis pace himself nicely across to him. And also we saw Rowan Dennis take the victory out. That group that was across in the front there worked very well together. And they only had 15 seconds at the top of Nettle Hill, which is 20K to go. The bunch was quite big behind with some sprinters in it. Caleb Ewan was in that bunch. They couldn't get back. They actually extended their gap to 40 seconds at one point. Ultimately, at the end, it was brought back to about 10 seconds. But, you know, I think for me, the ride of the day today was Rowan Dennis. I know it's easy to say because he won the stage, but he played it very well. Jai Hindley went for the victory. Dennis attacked over the top and hit out with about 500 metres to go. I think he's going to be hard to beat now. There's not a lot more to come in this. We've got Checkers Hill tomorrow. He may lose some time on that, but, you know, it's it's it was a really, for me, unpredictable day. I thought Caleb Ewan was going to be sprinting for it today. Corbin Strong has been a really surprise for me in this race, really going hard at the intermediates. And the big loss of today was Michael Matthews dropping his chain at the bottom of Nettle Hill. No teammates with him. Couldn't get his chain back on. And that was it. He's not very happy. Yeah, he's not very happy, Mitch. I've seen some comments. I don't know whether you've seen them after the stage about the fact that, well, there were attacks almost immediately after, after 
he had that mechanical problem. It was one of those unfortunate situations where the race would have been on at that point anyway, wouldn't it? It wasn't that they tried to take advantage of his misfortune. Um, but we always we always get differences of opinion when this kind of thing happens. When When is the race on? When is it not on? Um, I mean, the, the thing that that really stood out to me today was how prevalent the big Aussie riders, the big Aussie GC riders were. We heard from Jay Vine, um, Jai Hindley as well. I mean, it reminded me a little bit of when I used to go to the tour of California in the early days in February when, um, I think it was 2006 edition, the, the riders with any kind of connection to California had made this big objective out of the tour of California that year. And it made for a great spectacle, but it was an unusual time of year for those guys to be hitting a big form peak. And this is always, I know it's, it's a subject that people have, have debated before, but for those Aussies, guys, um, those Aussies that have objectives way down the line, Jai Hindley, Rowan Dennis, and so on and so forth. Is it, a, is it a danger going back to Australia in the Aussie summer, having a big objective, wanting to perform well on home roads, and and contriving some kind of form peak in January? Uh, well, yeah, we're in January still. Well, look, I don't think so. I think it, the points are so important these days and down under is transitions very much and we talked about the style of racing it's it's a very much important race and you know you can you can change a season around I'd, I'd like to hear dan's opinion on this but you know a guy like jay vine he's targeting the Giro, and he he said to me as you heard from the interview that he's taken more relaxed pro um training view into this season yet he's still at the pointy end and you know a guy like Jai Hindley, I feel like he's trained quite hard for the Tour Down Under and has sort of absorbed this pressure that is now on his shoulders. I'm really interested to see what is his season going to look like after winning the Giro, being back in Australia, and I spoke to him personally, he's feeling the pressure of the media and things like this. But this is now entering a world, and this is Dan's going to know about this much more than I will, of this expectation Suddenly you race without expectation, you're able to win, capitalize on that, but now you're expected to win. So I'll, I'll be very interested to see what happens with him and the rest of Tour Down Under and also the rest of the season with you know the Tour de France looming as well. I think the whole question of peaking now and peaking later, it's obviously that's, that was a big reason why I never went down under for the race. And it, but it also just showed how training's changed. I mean, you look at the the guys doing cyclocross now and they're they're managing to maintain this high level throughout the season and i think it's really like you go to training camp now and you're doing this the same intense efforts that the guys are doing at tour down under so it's i don't i think it is less important now because just simply because the philosophy of around a team structure has changed because obviously if you were aiming for the classics before you spent january doing seven hour rides or whatever you know so it's um well, yeah, on, on that note of pressure, yeah, for sure. I mean, how how Jai's how Jai he performed today. I think it shows that he's he's coping very well with with that environment. There is he, he was the first Aussie Grand Tour winner, right? And he, and he's now gone to the the biggest Aussie race and second. Oh, yeah, second, of course, yeah, Kadar. And uh, yeah, um, so yeah, he's uh, he seems to be coping very well, but of that that all comes down to the people around him as well and how the team the team will put the pressure on him too because it's I think it's a very different thing to we all put so much pressure on ourselves to perform and I've always said that nobody can put more pressure on you than yourself because we all want to win and it's how the team 
how the team puts the pressure on you. And that that is crucial because if the team's saying, look, you need to win, or do, are they saying, look, we know you're going to do your best and whatever happens, we, we, we got you back. And it seems that he's got a good structure there. Yeah, it's interesting, guys. We had Rolf Aldager from Bora Hansgrohe on the pod a couple of weeks ago, and he talked about the fact that well, the team had, had considered it judicious to change Jai Hindley's objectives or to, to give him different objectives to 2023 to send him to the Tour de France rather than send him to the Giro, partly because of the pressure of expectation that he will repeat that 2022 Giro win if he does go to the Giro, if he did go to the Giro. So that's something that I think is foremost in, in their mind. But Mitch, what's your sense of, well, how, mon- how many months on are we now? Seven, eight months on from his Giro victory. I mean, what's it done to Jai Hindley's status there? Do you get the sense of the Tour Down Under that he is very much the biggest show in town at the Tour Down Under? I wouldn't say the biggest show in town because we've got a lot of other riders here, but definitely on the Australian scene. Jai, you know, he's it was a massive deal in Australia. And I know when he went back to Perth, he was pulled left, right and centre. And I've definitely felt that here in Adelaide, that he is hot property. And everyone from the media side of things want to want to get a few words off him. Um, and as, you know, Dan and I well know that, it does sap your energy. You know, you, uh, even though now I'm being on the other side, you understand you had a pretty cruisy life as a, as a pro. That's important for your performance, being able to switch off and go back to your room and doing things like that. You don't want to be on your feet and even mentally doing interviews every second of the day. I felt like that's happened to him. And I was very surprised that he was able to be at that top end of the, pel- of the race today. Um, actually very happy. Um, yeah, he's a great guy, very relaxed guy, but I did see some stress in him the, the, the times I had chance to chat to him this week and I felt his pain, if that's the right word, from all the commitments he's had since he's been back. You know, it's, 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 it's a double-edged sword. You want to be able to give as much as you can to the community and the people who, who have helped you along the way and promote yourself in the media. But at the end of the day, you've also got to think about what you need to do this year. You've got to it's, – it's, it's a fine line. And it- – he, he's not a guy to whom all of that comes naturally or easily, I, w- I would say. I mean, he's, he's not necessarily an introvert, but he's, not, he's certainly not a, a very gregarious extrovert either. Well, he's got a great character and I, I hate to see that damage. You know, he's such an easy laid back guy. You know, even when we saw him in the interviews at the, at the Giro this year, you know, he's like some great sayings coming out of him, you know, in that sort of relaxed vibe. And you heard from his teammates. He was the first guy to go around and thank them. And they were happy to work for him. And I would hate to see that tarnished by him going in his shell and realising that I can't be myself because I need to pull back or whatever. That's something I experienced in my career when I felt like I couldn't be myself. I wasn't my best rider. And I'm talking about a guy who was just helping someone, let alone a guy who's trying to win the Giro or the Tour de France. You need to be naturally yourself. And I can imagine Dan may have experienced that himself along the way where you feel like you can't be yourself because you've got to protect yourself. And it's, you're just not naturally being yourself out on the road. It's so important. It depends if you get sucked into trying to be, so, trying to be the rider that you're expected to be. I mean, that's the important thing. It's like if he's pe- – people might – when you're at the top, you're obviously – it's very visible. Like this week, for example, if he if he has a, a mechanical incident or a crash or something, 
maybe in previous editions or previous years, if you if you have a bad moment in a race, nobody notices. Whereas now, as soon as there's a, something happens, the everybody's quick to notice, quick to point it out, and then they start asking questions. So, it, yeah, I just, I'm really happy to have seen how he performed today because I think if he starts the season well, he, he has the opportunity to build momentum. Whereas if this race goes badly, then already with that level of expectation, people start to ask questions, and that just starts to instill fresh doubt in your own mind because you have if, – if people lose confidence in you, you start questioning what, why – why do I not? Why should I lose confidence in myself as well? Why are they questioning me? Dan mentioned momentum there, and just to go from Jai to Jay, Mitch back to Jay Vine, whom we heard from first of all in this part. Um, he's a guy who seems to have all the momentum at the moment in just generally in his career. Um, it's just been a constant. Well, since he turned professional a couple of years ago, it's just been a crescendo that doesn't. Well, it shows no signs of abating at the moment. And um, what's the what's the sense you get from him of well, besides what he told you, of where he's heading this year? Look, he's full of confidence, um, and I guess rightly so. You know, he had a fantastic year last year. He started the year well. He's got his plan, and you know, as you as you can hear from the interview, that he's found his feet in the peloton. Um, you know, already th- only third year in the peloton. And he's got a plan. I know he's got a plan with his with his wife as uh, his partner as well. They had a plan to get in the world tour. That's happened. He's very um, goal orientated. He knows what he wants to do. Whether you're on board with him or not, he knows what he wants to do. I like that because so often we see young guys come in and just get disillusioned by trying to work with teams and have install all their trust in teams. And I'm not trying to throw teams under the under the bus here, but you need to know what you're doing and you need to set up your own team around you. That's very important because at the end of the day, you can move from team to team to team. You need to have the right support network with you that are working for you, for Mitch Stocker, for Jay Vine, whoever it is. And I feel like he's got that. He's got a really good confidence. He knows what he's doing. And I think he's, he's, he's in a good spot at the moment. UAE... Um, it seems like he's really happy there at the moment and he's ready to take the world on at the moment. I feel he oozed with confidence and that's a great thing to start the season with and he's riding with that. I think in the fact no, that I, say, a, I think UAE might there. have found the right team for himself with that. I don't know Jay at all, but UAE seems to be a team that the, the amount of freedom that they allow Pogacar to express himself in races and they, he, uh, they seem to allow the rider to kind of define how they go about things much more than say some of the other top teams who would be very controlling and have prescribed training and, and, and plans set out that you don't really have control. I think some riders really embrace that when a team like say Ineos says they tell you everything you need to do in your life. And then other teams like UAE, they kind of, they, they sign on a talented rider like Jay and kind of give them the freedom to, to be themselves. And so I think he, he seems to have found the right spot for him in there. That's, Two Australians, Jay Vine and Jai Hindley, who have already been prominent in the men's race. I should also just mention that in the women's race, it was a tale of the Aussies as well. Um, Grace Brown won that race, FDJ Suez rider. She won that race with, I think, the, the attack, the decisive attack came on. Is it, it corkscrew hill, corkscrew climb, corkscrew, what, what, what do we call it, Mitch? Yeah, the corkscrew. Um, really, and the boys are heading up the, the corkscrew. Corkscrew Sorry. tomorrow. Um, it's not to named, be confused with Willunga Hill. Willunga, yes. Willunga is not in this year's edition. First time for a long time that Willunga is not in this year's edition. 
Um, they're going to finish up Mount Lofty in the men's edition I'm talking about now. The women went over the corkscrew as their penultimate climb in their race. The men are heading over the corkscrew tomorrow. Um, tough climb. You know, as you can imagine, if you've got a corkscrew at home, just envision that. They're going to be riding up the outside of a corkscrew as they go up over the top. So, look, the women tackled that, and it was it was a great race as um, Grace Brown took out the victory. She's, she's on an upward trajectory. She's been riding fantastic over the last couple of years, and I think this just capitalises where she's going. And, um, you know, a bit of a spoiler alert, she is going to be a guest on Life in the Peloton coming up because... I'm going to love talking to her. Very nice. I said it was a tale of two Aussies. Grace Brown beat Amanda Spratt. Amanda Spratt, new, newly um, the, the team leader at Trek Segafredo after many years at what's now Jayco, isn't it? Jayco uh, Alula. Um, Mitch, we're going to move on from Tour Down Under now in just a second but before we do i just want you to tell us a little bit about your journey to the tour down under please this year which was an unusual one yeah it was it was look i'm i had planned to get across here i had a little few commitments over here with rafa and doing a couple of you know podcasts and things like that and i thought well if i've got to be in adelaide i might as well ride across there there's this weird gap in australia it's the summer of cycling over here We've got the national championships in Buninyong and a week later we've got Tour Down Under. There's this weird sort of gap. And I thought, well, I know how to fill that gap. I'll ride across to Adelaide. Um, You know, and I I did ride up to Wollongong Worlds from my house earlier, uh, late last year, but I did it on my own. It was a bit of a soul-searching trip. This time I selected a crew to come with me, a really, really cool crew. I had no idea if it was going to work. Long days on the saddle, hard terrain, Road, gravel, everything included. And we, we had a, a, a young girl called Ella Bloor who's a – she's been selected to go over to the Lifetime Series this year. So a really exciting rider who's doing some alternate stuff. Peter Mullins, who's a household name in Australian women's cycling. She's the manager of the Rock Salt women's team. We had also the journalist, Rupert Guinness, would you believe it, Daniel? The, the, you know, the legendary the legendist. Was Thank he wearing you. a Hawaiian shirt on the bike? He didn't. He had his Hawaiian kit on. But I didn't realize he's not only a legendary journalist, he's a legendary endurance athlete. He's done, you know, the Trans Am, a big event in Australia. I didn't know that either. He was supposed to do. I think he was supposed to do the. Did he? He was supposed to do the tour, the race across America last year, I think. He didn't get to it. He's doing the. Yeah, he's doing the Ram this year. And this is the preparation. He's used the. I called it the Rat to Radelaide, the Ballarat to Radelaide. Adelaide, of course. So he came with us. Um, and we had, you know, Tommy Chapman is an exciting rider from Australia. He's a cyclocross rider, guy who did the nationals. We were pretty much just transporting him back to Adelaide. He's from Adelaide. And of course, the f- most famous of all bike packers, Lockie Morton, joined us. Good chance for him and I to catch up. It was an amazing adventure, really cool adventure, and a great way to experience. Australian culture for me a lot of places I'd never been before great pubs of course great beers and a really cool crew and look I'm gonna I'm gonna do a shameless plug here if you want to hear that adventure go across and listen to my podcast because we captured that um and that's my first episode this year I know Dan's already listened to it he sent me a few messages just a couple of hours ago about how much he loved it um and he unfortunately we would have loved to have him on board what are you here for, Mitch, if not to plug your own podcast? 
Well, chaps, I said at the start of today's pod that a recent event had got us thinking about life beyond cycling. Uh, I didn't include it in the news roundup. So for those who don't know, um, it is a tragic piece of news. The former Dutch rider Louis Vestra was found dead at the weekend um, at the age of just 40. Vestra was a pro from 2006 to 2016 won Tour of Denmark in 2012, the three days of the Pana in 2016. He was second in Paris-Nice in 2012 as well. He was part of Vincenzo Nibali's Tour de France winning team in 2014. He rode for Vacan Soleil and Astana. And, well, both of you, I mean, there was a lot of talk at the weekend about how maybe this raised questions about the difficulty a lot of former riders have to find an identity, reinvent themselves after cycling, the sort of void that awaits a lot of them after cycling. I mean, Louis Vestra's issues were fairly well documented and some of those issues certainly predated his career as a professional cyclist. And I don't really uh, want to speculate about his or anyone else's mental health and what caused some of those problems. But before we talk more generally about those issues, reinventing oneself after a career in professional cycling and the transition into retirement, let's hear a little bit more about Louis Vestra from his biographer, the Dutch journalist Thomas Sietzma. Um, he authored Het Based, The Beast, which was a book about Louis Vestra. It came out in 2018. And Thomas continued to have a lot of contact with Louis Vestra and um, well I spoke to Thomas this morning year later 2018 so we it was uh, I know, one year I think then we were busy with it and um, uh, yeah it was a shock of course that he uh, he passed away but it was not really a big surprise if I can be honest with you when when uh, Louis was was a young rider when he was 12, 13, 14, he was the best of, of the Netherlands. He won everything without doing it, a training. It was, it was, yeah. I, I still can't believe it when I'm telling about this, but he, he won everything. But uh, it was a little bit, uh, for him, a little bit boring, I think. So he stopped, he went, uh, went go out, go after the girls, um, drinking a lot, using drugs a lot. Uh, and he stopped cycling. He, he, he managed to get above 100 kilos. He was really fat. And um, so uh, when he was in his beginning 20s, his brother was also a good cyclist, not a professional, but he was good. And he, he won a race. And uh, Liwa was never at home. But that afternoon, his, his mother was um, uh, celebrating her birthday. So he was there. And um, uh, his brother told him about the race he, he won. And so Liwa said, ah, that's nothing. I can do that also. Give me a bicycle and I'm going to win this race next year. So his brother challenged him. So, okay, I give you a bike. You're going to train and let's see what's happening. So yeah, from that, a couple of years later, he was, uh, he was a professional cyclist. And uh, yeah, the rest is a little history, of course. But yes, he won uh, um, a couple of times the time trial cha championship in Holland. And um, prize Nice, um, uh, uh, mountain stage. Of course, he won the Tour de France with Nibali with the cobblestone. Uh, hmm. uh, yes, the stage you know maybe of course, but uh, yes, and, and yes, uh, the Stana is he was his language is 
he speaks good Frisian. It's a language in, in the Netherlands, but his, his Dutch was not that good and his English was really not good. Mm. So at Astana with a lot of Italians and uh, Russians and Kazakhs, uh, he, he felt lost and uh, he stopped cycling and yeah, had a downfall like just in his teenage years. Um, again, using drugs, using alcohol, um, not knowing what to do with his life. Uh, I think he didn't feel much appreciation when he was not a cyclist. He, he didn't know what to do, and he got a big depression, um, and and uh, yeah, got some medicines for that. But um, he he thought always, I'm going, I'm growing, I'm I'm getting fed because of this medicine, so I have to get rid of him. And if, and if he did that, he had a big downfall again, drugs. So this was, yeah, it always came back, and he never get yeah out of it and you last saw him i think late in the summer you certainly wrote about that in your piece in um is it trial the dutch newspaper just tell us about what you saw when you last encountered louis yes uh, yes i heard uh, some uh, things from his ex-wife and from his brother that it wasn't the yeah his life was uh yeah it's a mess so I thought, um, yeah, maybe I, I can do something for the family and 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 go f- go search for him and uh, and have a talk with him. Uh, so I found him in the yes in the, in a garage in the, in a, in, the, in the Netherlands, and he was yes it was awful to see because uh, his nickname was the Beast on the bike, and uh, uh, what I saw was literally uh, literally a, a beast, I think. Um, he was, uh, yeah. He, he, I think he a little bit lost his mind, and I couldn't get get him to talk to what he had to do with his life or what what his future was like. He was a little bit aggressive towards me. Uh, he knew, of course, what I wanted. I wanted to help him and get him out of there because he had some, yeah, some bad friends around him over there. And yeah, it was I think one o'clock in the afternoon. I got a coffee, and he drank two big beers when I was there. Mm-hmm. Um, he couldn't, yeah, he couldn't get out, he said, and he wanted this, and he said, leave me alone. I, I always did what other people wanted from me, and now I want this, so leave me, please. Mm. And, and after that, he didn't react uh, on messages, and uh, I could see that. I, I told him, I said, you have two, if you go, if you're doing this, you have two options, or or you're going to die soon, and or... Uh, you're going to get caught by the police by doing something uh, you had to, to do. Uh, mm. So, yeah, it's the first thing that uh, happened, unfortunately. Uh, Thomas, uh, you, in writing, in the process of writing the book with him, I, I imagine you spent a lot of hours with him. Um, just talk yeah. a little bit about, well, what were his best qualities? And also, what, if anything, do you think he needed and could have saved him? What was this void for Louis Westra? Um, yeah, I don't know if life. he could. I didn't know if there was a, a, a way to save him. Um, I just talked to his brother this this morning, and he said if he didn't get a, uh, became a cyclist uh, back in his twenties, uh, it probably would have happened uh, back then. So, right. um, I, and and it's of course it's very difficult for the family because they're asking themselves, could we have done more? And also for friends, bec- uh, like. Theo Bos of uh, or uh, Johnny Ogerland, who are uh, yeah, cyclists we were friends with, mm. and they are asking the same question. I'm doing it also, but everybody says couldn't. Yeah, he didn't want to. So you you could try as long as you wanted, but you couldn't get him out of this. 
and and that's a little bit harsh i think also and 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 painful especially for the family i think um but um i think it, it is the right it is it is what yeah it is what it is mm. so a, a phenomenally well gifted athlete strong cyclist that's also where his nickname came from um but tell us finally about some of his well the the good qualities the great qualities that you saw in louis uh, again in the process of working with him uh, in <laughs> yeah, there are a lot uh, yeah there, there are a lot i have to think a little bit but what the first thing i i, I now uh, comes in my mind is what i heard from nibali in the to the france of uh, 2014 he, he won of course and he couldn't speak with uh, with Liwa because of their language uh, the difficult difficulties so the only thing he, he, he said in the to the france to Liwa was and the only thing he understood was Liwa piano piano because he was <laughs> winning so fast all the time and and never stopped also in the cobblestone stage he yeah he, I, I think that that was the the day that Nibali got to the yellow and never gave uh, gave it to another. So th- th- that is one thing that comes in mind. And uh, I, I don't know if you, I probably you met him uh, in, in your yeah the past few years. But he was a very friendly guy who always wanted to give an, an interview to anybody. Um, and and what I also heard this week, he has of course he had a lot of mental problems. And there was a guy in the Netherlands who also had these mental problems. And Liu went after his career to Spain to get his bicycle bicycling hotel. And this guy had no money, but he was struggling mentally, and he, he, like Liwe, and he, he sent him as a message and, Liu, and asked Liwe, "Can I come to your hotel? I don't have money, but uh, I want to learn from you how you did it, um, and, and maybe we can talk about it." And Liwe said to him, "Just come to me. Come to Spain. You don't have to to to, to pay anything. Just your electricity. That's that's enough. And we go on a bike, and let's see what happens." And mm-hmm. um, it, it helped for that guy. He got out of his mental problems, and Liwa always sent his message. Also, the last year, uh, to ask how it went, and if he could help anymore. And um, so that, that I think that that's also Liwa, a very helpful guy and understanding. Um, when he was yeah, when when he was okay, it was a great guy. But he never yeah got this yes one year long. It was always a little bit yeah changing. So, both of you, um, well, first of all, I'll ask both of you, did you have any contact with Louis Westra? Did you, I, I guess you rode alongside him in the peloton. Did you know much about him, Mitch? Yeah, look, Louis, he was, he was a highly regarded rider because he was just so strong. He was one of those guys that, you know, he was un, unpredictably strong. He just didn't look like one of those guys who could ride away from you on the flat. Um, but being a Dutchman... I I started my career racing against him when he was in for Consolé. I was in school Shimano. And we raced a lot of times together in, in a lot of the smaller races. Um, and got to know him, I guess, quite well. You know, not not personally, but as, as racing against him. But just regarded him as such a weapon as a rider. Um, and not really getting to know him after that. I moved to, obviously, Green Edge after that, and he moved on. As, as you just explained to the different teams. Um, but just a really sad case. It's, it's, it's something that, you know, whether this is, is, this is true or not, um, I think regardless, it's a really interesting topic as the transition. It's something that myself, I've gone through, Dan is going through as well at the moment as well. Um, you know, post, 
post cycling career, post professional sport, it's a it's an interesting transition. I think it also sorry, it also depends as well. Like obviously we I don't know if it's Mitch, but it's the sport has changed a lot now and and how much more all consuming it is. And that's what's gonna it's gonna make that transition even harder. And but I think it's also important really makes it harder sorry is because we you have less time for stuff outside of your sport and outside of your career when you're when you're actually racing and like i i personally found stuff that i enjoyed doing away from the sport and that that made the transition easier and obviously i'm fortunate to have a phenomenal family around me as well and with my wife and kids and but you still have those wobbles every now and again and yeah personally i didn't know louis louis at all and obviously raced against him a few times but i don't really have have uh, much much memory of him as a person but yeah as we said it's a, it's a very sad case but we also yeah the circumstances surrounding it now are still still quite clouded about, about what actually happened there i mean mitch you certainly were very very conscious of some of the difficulties that might await you and i say that because well you even made a fantastic podcast about it before you had retired um a few months upstream you started working on a podcast and speaking to some of your peers who had experienced the transition um in fact let's hear just a small clip um this is you talking to first, I think it's David Miller and then TJ Van Garderen about, well, I think one of them describes it as the, the cliff edge that can await when riders do decide to end their career. Let's just hear that now. Externally and with hindsight, the ascending spiral takes longer to kind of to get to that plateau, that peak to assume all the, the kudos and respect and the worth of being a recognized, successful, accomplished professional cyclist takes many years. But equally, it actually happens really quickly that you lose that. Mm. But you don't know that when you're in it. You, you still think it's all okay and it takes you a long time to realize, but it, it's essentially you fall off a cliff. I don't know, cycling, it was always sort of like, even though it was our job, it was our, it's our escape too. Like, this is the me time I get. This is the time that I don't have to deal with kids and I don't have to have this responsibility. This is what I'm doing for me. Once you're not getting paid to do that anymore, and once it becomes uh, a luxury than it, rather than a necessity, you feel more selfish about it. Also, if it doesn't work, you you have to kind of accept that. All right, maybe I don't have this time right now. Yeah, in a in a way, you almost feel like you're losing part of your identity. Like you're always mm -hmm. one of the fittest people in the world. You know, like not anybody can do what you can do. And now the level I'm at, even just a couple months out of the, the sport, I'm like, okay, there's a there's a lot of people that can do what I can do now. <laughs> it's, so it's it's in a way it's hard to accept, but also in another way you're you're like, you know what, this is it's kinda nice not to not to feel like you have to go out and do something. Now it's more like you get to go out and do something. So Mitch, I, I listened to, I re-listened to that podcast, a terrific podcast it was, yesterday. And I just wondered, I mean, both of you are at the same stage of retirement. In effect, you retired at, at pretty much the same time. And, and Mitch, as I say, you were incredibly well prepared and certainly briefed by a lot of your peers about what would await. Um, I just wonder just over a year on um, how good do you think a lot of the advice you received from other riders was and what have been some of the surprises that you found along the way over the last 
12, 14 months. It's hugely important. Hugely important. And, you know, I was very lucky that I had a podcast, a platform that it's weird. If you go and speak to someone and ask them for their advice, I don't think I would have got the same response if I hadn't put a microphone in front of them. Front of them. Weirdly, it often happens the opposite. You put a microphone in front of someone and they close up. But this scenario allowed them to open up and tell their story. And I took a lot of advice out of that. That was the whole purpose of the podcast. I was so interested in my next phase of my life. And I want to make a podcast about it. I want to tap into these guys from all different eras. Guys who just retired, like TJ, to guys like David Miller and and also, you know, guys like Andrea Clear. You know, like a guy who had retired, you know, 10 years before. I needed to understand what it, what it was from a physical side of things, but also from a psychological side of things. The things I took out of that was cycling is so important to us. I know it sounds obvious, but the physical is small. It's the mental. I, I And that's something I've taken on this year, and my wife understands it too, is that I need to get out on the bike. I was doing up to 30 hours a week and averaging probably about 20 hours a week on the bike. That was time that I got for my own therapy, time to think, time to process stuff. Okay, this year I've done probably about eight, 10 hours a week riding, but I needed that reduced amount. Of course, I'm not a pro anymore. I don't need to train that much, but I also needed that time alone out on the bike. I think we underestimate how much we process it when we're out on the bike. And that has probably been the most takeaway point that I got from all these guys is that that is what we need out there. The physical stuff gives us that endorphin rush that we need. It's almost like a drug. We need that as as athletes. But also psychologically, I think we need that time to think, to just let ourselves free. That's our alone time. That's been the most important thing that I took out of that podcast, but also this year on board when I noticed I was struggling or being probably pretty annoying for my wife and my family like just get out of here go for a ride would you and i knew after one or two hours that was enough that's all i needed it's interesting mitch you describe yourself i think earlier in the podcast as someone who helped more you were more of a became more of a a domestique sometimes it occurs to me that guys who fall into that role have already gone through uh maybe more of a transition than someone like dan i mean dan you're a team leader pretty much throughout your career and um, you've already had to sort of relinquish a part of your identity all of you guys when you're juniors when you're under 23s you're the sort of alpha um you're the best in your region the best in your town um the best in your age category and then there comes a point where for some of you there's a bit of a fork in the road and you decide that you're going to become something else and you you already reinvent yourself maybe in that sense Mitch I don't know um whereas Dan your identity as a professional cyclist was always around being a team leader I just wonder whether that might be different or even more difficult I don't know I think well I was a bit of a different case because obviously I'd already started forming my uh my business, Rubik's Ventures, like before I retired. And the, the basis of that was because my best friend, he spotted this this problem, I guess you would say, that this, as the guys put it, as Mitch said, the cliff edge, you know, there was going to go, he didn't want me to, to continue cycling because I had nothing else. And what that gave me the opportunity was to discover a different world, which is the business world, as far as something that I actually 
kind of took baby steps into during my career that I actually started to enjoy. And then it gave me something to turn to and to really put all my energy and focus into last winter. And, uh, because yeah, you need, you need that, that distraction, but also from a team leader's point of view, what I've, what I've understood. And it, this is, it is a big issue. It's this, how the sport, it's almost, it's the same when you, when you're in the sport, if you have a bad season, nobody wants to talk to you anymore. You're not important. And you almost get forgotten very, very quickly. And when you retire as well, like I re retired obviously at the end of 2021 and it was almost like you become invisible immediately. There's no, and there was no really reaching out to say, see if I wanted to ride this bike or if I wanted to work here or there, or it was just silence. It was, I didn't exist anymore. And it was only when I started to actually inquire about working with people or, or stuff like that, that you actually become yeah relevant again, I guess. And, and it's that, it, it's that question as far as, yeah, I guess relevance is a good word because the sport is so, it's so about the here and now that one bad result, one injury, and it moves on so quickly. There's, there's no, there's always somebody else willing there to take your place. And that's, that can be very difficult for riders who, I mean, I personally, although obviously I was fortunate to be successful, I never, I was never that guy who really enjoyed the limelight and everything, but people who really embraced that and what, and enjoy being the star and in front of TV cameras all the time. And that once that's gone, it is a real question mark about how you deal with the essential isolation. And, it, and it's a, you're, you're, you're forgotten. Mitch, I think it's a subject you've been talking about with one of your former peers in the pro peloton someone who has just made this transition sam Bewley, former teammate of yours new zealander long time what was what was mitchelton scott as i said earlier jaco alula rider he's at the tour down under i believe you spoke to him today should we hear a bit of that conversation sam Bewley. Now, look, we've both stepped into the afterlife, um, the next phase of our life after cycling. You only very recently. Um, you actually now have got a job with Israel Premier Tech as a director sportive, but it's something that you may have already sort of realised or even talking to other riders like myself about psychologically, it's, a, it's another step. It's something I think gets underestimated. Um, I've experienced it myself this year. It is a bit of a step down and it's something you continually... Yeah, this loss of identity is it something that you've sort of been aware of already yeah i mean when you stop racing you've obviously been doing it you know for you and i and just talking about you and i it's been such a big part of our lives professional for a long time and and then it comes i mean you, you can't escape it you can't hide it at a certain point you've got to retire from cycling you can't race till you're 60 and i sort of knew i wanted to stop racing but it, but then i had this really weird period where i didn't know what i wanted to do and um and I was always interested in being a sports director, but it's not—it's not the case for everybody that you can just f find a job straight away. And uh, so it's a difficult—it is a difficult transition. And you know, a lot of people, you know, find it maybe harder than what I've found it. Um, and it's—it's—it's it's, it's something that, like you say, you lose your identity. You know, you lose your, the, the popularity, and people aren't as interested in talking to you as any, anymore in some ways, or asking for photos or autographs. So you've got to kind of recalibrate and find your way a little bit. Uh, really important to have. You know, I was lucky that, you know, a good mate like you retired sort of at the same time. So I had you to speak to, guys like Swain Tuff to speak to. Trying, I sort of found my own support network and got different ideas and different pieces of advice, which was really important. Um, but so far, I'm, I'm enjoying it. I mean, 
I was ready to stop racing, but I wasn't ready to leave cycling. So I feel good about what I'm doing now, still involved in cycling. If I didn't have this job, then you know maybe it would be a different story. I did have a period of time when I stopped after my last race. I sort of had no responsibility to to um, bike exchange anymore as a, as a bike rider. I had no responsibility to Israel Premier Tech yet because I hadn't started the job. So it was a bit of a period of where I was a bit lost and I was a bit bored. Um, so I'm just happy that it didn't last too long. So yeah. Do you think it is a bit of a responsibility of these of the team to maybe set up a bit of support network for the riders going into this next phase, or even just a bit of guidance to just to help them transition? You know, whether that's psychological guidance or whether that's career guidance, is there a, a bit of a hole in the market? Therefore, not in the market's not the right word, but you know, for the teams to step up a little bit and look for supporting the riders for that next phase. I think there's a there's like a even as you, when you're a cyclist, you know sometimes that support doesn't exist so much. Like a lot of teams, they don't have psychologists and all these things, and um, not everybody needs them. Uh, but I think it's it's definitely a, an area in professional cycling that can be improved, even when you are racing. And I think the UCI should you know even consider making it a rule that no matter how long you've been in a team for, if it's your last year as in whatever team, even if you're only there for one year or ten years, that they offer a one year support period after you retire from cycling you know to help you help with that transition if the teams do have psychologists you still have free access to those people uh career guidance all those sorts of things i think it's a would be a very valuable tool to implement rather than just being like okay we're done with that bike rider let's find another one i think there's a duty of care there to uh, help help bike riders with transitions especially guys that struggle well, Mitch, that was interesting talking about hearing you and Sam Bewley there talking about the lack of support, the lack of guidance. I mean, to be honest, guys, I, I think this is something that should possibly be discussed and, and developed on a societal level. I mean, retirement at any age after any kind of career is a is a big transition and it's something that no one is probably that well prepared for and I don't know whose responsibility it should be in professional cycling I mean before recording today I wondered about whether you guys had had a lot of help from agents um, the riders union or unions they've been maligned um, for their inactivity in lots of different domains and contexts in the past. But I wondered whether they might have a role in this. Teams themselves, I mean, Mitch, um, as I say, we heard you and Sam discussing it there. But um, who who could help in this situation? Who should help? Look, I think, you know, I think it's actually a bit of a mentor role. Um, people have experienced it themselves. I'm not necessarily as... Um, much connected as Sam was when I spoke to him about a psychologist. I think personally I would connect more to a guy like myself. Well, actually I reached out to a guy like Swain Tuft, a guy who was going through the same process a year ahead of me, a guy who was experienced and I could learn from the mistakes he made or experience that he had. I'm not necessarily saying everyone's got the same thing, but he could just tell me what's coming. Um, you know, if, if someone wanted to ask me about what their first year was about and they're entering it now, I could tell them. I'm not necessarily saying I give them, you know, do this or do that, but you just sort of prepare yourself. And that's what I did with that podcast. No one was giving me advice. They were telling me what they missed, what they wanted. And I think that's where the angle is. Bringing on more mentors, people who can give advice to riders. I think that's actually a, a gap in the pro peloton that we're missing. We focus so much on sharpening the sword on the physical side, yet the psychological side, we, I feel like we neglect it so much. And I don't know what the percentage is, whether it's 50-50 or whatever it is, but 
there is a lot psychological that we can do, whether we're still racing or whether we're retiring. That's a big, big element that I think we're neglecting. There's a certain, sorry, we keep overlapping. <laughs> there's a, I mean, there's a certain amount of self-reflection to be done as well as, uh, because essentially we all love bike riding. We all love riding our bikes. That's why we're cyclists, right? And there comes a point where you need to find something to replace that because you don't need to be spending, you're not spending 30 hours doing what you love all the time. And it's, uh, yeah, there is that, it's a challenge about finding, if you're fortunate enough to find something that you, you want to do again. And a lot of guys end up going down the traditional route, going to a team car or, or, or management. And yeah, that that's a way of filling that void. But it also comes down to this, that sense of self-fulfillment. And if you enjoy being in that environment, uh, et cetera, you know? Mitch, I think you've got to dash off in just a second, but I, I did want to ask you guys, I mean, both of you, to a certain extent, or to a large extent, I would say, seemed like you went out on your own terms. But the other problem that we're seeing, I think, increasingly in professional cycling, and I was talking to Dan the other day about one of his former teammates, Davide Villela, who's a very good rider, and, and an example of a rider who's had the rug pulled from under his feet, had no intention of retiring, no thought that he might have to retire, I think he's 31, and simply ended up not finding a contract. Um, and he has had to make that readjustment and think differently about his career. I mean, he's, he's had to sort of to make that reevaluation within the space of a few weeks. I mean, that must be absolutely brutal. And I'm sure you've both known guys who have been in that position who envisage themselves being pros for another four or five years and have found themselves with no plans and, and no foothold on which to build that new identity. Well, look, I, yeah, I think I was really honest with myself early in my final year and realized that, you know what, there I don't know whether there was ability to push on one or two more years, but I, I was honest. I, I said to my wife, you know, what more do I really need to achieve here? Am I happy with what I've done? Yes, I was. Is there anything more I want to achieve? Yeah, sure. I'd love to win Roubaix, but I was realistic. That probably wasn't going to happen. Um, so I was, I was quite content and it was, it was a hard question I had to ask myself and be really honest with myself, but then also take control of my own situation. I, this one thing I do not miss about pro cycling is that continual fight for your own contract. Um, and I think I enjoyed so much knowing that it was my last year and enjoying the hard moments in a race opposed to stressing about the hard moments. That was something that I was able to do. Like you said, not everyone is able to do that because they're not able to realize that, that is the moment, you know, and, and Valela, Maybe it wasn't the right time for him. And there are some – and we've also – I'm sure Dan's been in some quite tight situations where you don't know whether it's going to be the end or not. Um, even a guy like, you know, Dan Martin, you know, it's it's it comes like that and you're thinking, how did I get myself in this situation? Um, but I was lucky enough to be able to realise that and honest, be honest enough and have the right people around me to realise, you know what, there's not much more I need to achieve here. Um of course, the looming Roubaix win. But apart from that, but I don't know, Dan. What about you? Like, it's a different situation for a rider like myself. How did you come to that position? It was very, very similar. It was a case of me kind of thinking about it, and I, I assessed my career, and I kind of thought, I think definitely that managing to win the stage in the Giro last year was a 
was a key element because it was it was a case of well realistically what else can i achieve in cycling i'm i'm very happy with what i've done and the also the added i mean as we spoke about earlier about the number of crashes in tour down under i felt like that was becoming crashes becoming more and more prevalent and i was looking looking at myself thinking well i've i've managed to achieve everything that more than i could ever have dreamed of in the sport and then you know what's what else is there to go, go at and is the risk of crashing and really being seriously injured or just that the fact of crashing it's unpleasant right <laughs> so it's kind of like and having to fight back and go through all that uh rehab and all that it's it's just and also just the sport as well i mean i i find myself now questioning if i made the right decision and the fact is looking back i really miss what it was like how cycling was 10 years ago that's because it was just it it sounds horrible like it, it's just it was different it was a lot more relaxed it was that those race some races were obviously incredibly stressful but other races were more more chill whereas now every race is all in you have to be on it almost like yeah 24 7 52 weeks a year you know it's like it's the sport is incredibly intense and it just got to the point where i was fortunate enough to be in the position to say look am i enjoying this anymore and the answer was no and I came to that decision and that's what led to me retiring, you know? So as you say, it was that moment of self-reflection and being like, okay, are we, are we happy with what we've done? Yes. Yeah. Is it really worth going on? Is the sacrifice worth the enjoyment that I'm getting out of this anymore? No. So that's what, and yeah, it's, I mean, also even guys like Richie Port, you know, it's, he obviously chose it, chose to retire, but didn't realize when he rode his last bike race that, it was his last and there's so many i i I feel very fortunate to have been able to start my last bike race knowing it was my last bike race and guys like vanilla as well very different just position to richie but the same situation he he's he potentially has ridden his last bike race without knowing it was his last and that's that's not not that's that's an even worse place to be thrown into retirement very last thing before I allow uh, Mitch to retire from this podcast, but um, TJ Van Garderen touched on something in that clip um, about the physical aspect of this and how that sense of being physically fit and being one of the fittest people on the planet, how that can actually become an integral part of your identity as a professional cyclist. And you know, just thinking about Louis Vester, it seemed as though the extremes of well, physical exertion and being a professional cyclist, they were almost a proxy for other extremes that he sought out um, at other points in his life and might have been his undoing. But I was just wondering what your relationship is with that at this stage, chaps, um, over a year after retiring. Do you miss um, being incredibly fit and to the extent where it could cause you problems? You know... It's something that I thought was going to change quite a lot. And I actually undergo when un, undertook some testing. I took myself back into the lab and did a VO2 max test, did a cardiology test. I wanted to see what had happened after 12 months. Um, of course, I documented that on my podcast, another shameless shout out. Um, but I was so interested to see what actually happens a year after you retire. Um, you know what, that's a spoiler, but not a whole lot. I'm actually fitter than ever. Um, because one of the things is we stress ourselves so much as a pro, we never really give ourselves, our body a chance to recover. And almost ticking it on doing a third of what I did, still riding, but just a little bit, 
my body's actually able to absorb those, you know, 15 years that I was a pro. Yeah, but Mitch, Mitch, you do those tests in another year and you'll be a wreck. I know. <laughs> I was, yeah, Cast. I was going to say the same thing. That's the but I, I can only speak about one year. The- I can only speak about one year. And so yeah, it's yeah. it's been great. Um, look, I one thing I have to admit, one thing I have loved, and I don't know about you, Dan, is that for the first six months at least, I was still stuck in that regime of looking down at the monitor and going, it's one hour 52, I'll better make sure it's two hours or it's 180, 86 watts, I better try and get that up to 200 watts or whatever the hell it was. And just once you let that go and you do the ride for what it is and the bunch for what it is, it's so liberating. It's amazing. I don't know how no one can understand it, but it's like you go for a bunch ride and you sprint up a hill and you're like, I don't have to sit on my horse. I can just go full now. I can follow these guys and I can race them and play around. And it's, it's fun. I'm without sounding wanky. It's fun to go full circle and come back to the beginning of why I started cycling because I love riding a bike. Um, and that's where I'm at. I don't know if it's the same for all retired riders and I get it that some riders are just done with it. But I feel like that was the, the novelty thing about when I retired is that I just wasn't quite over the hill yet. It was just like a nice time that I could still enjoy cycling for what it is. I totally agree because that was that was one of the key mo- ideas in my head. I wanted to stop before I hated riding my bike. And I felt like I was – this how cycling has changed as far as – every day you just get a prescription of exactly what you need to do how hard you need to push and it's i like even like 10 years ago i'll just go out and ride my bike and sprint up hills and that was enough to be competitive in races whereas where the sport's got to now it has to be this incredibly intense prescribed training regime to get to the top and yeah i did it for a year and then i realized you know what like i'm just not enjoying this being a slave to my power meter and as you say like going out now and just riding my bike and not, not even worrying about the numbers and or how long you've ridden for i mean most days i don't even take a computer with me now i just kind of just ride and don't even know how long i've ridden for and it's it's that diversity of being able to just wake up in the morning and do what you want and it's rediscovering why you became a cyclist in the first place and i think that's important it's those middle-aged saddos and weekend warriors that we're the ones who are slaves to our power meters and Strava now. Um, Mitch, I'm going to keep Dan in the Cycling Podcast County Jail for one more part, but I'm going to release you into the Adelaide night and I'm going to thank you for your company on the first three parts and wish you well a very enjoyable rest of the tour down under. Thanks a lot, Mitch. Thanks, guys. been an honour to be on the, on the pod again. The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport. Fueled by science. As we said before Christmas, Science in Sport has renewed its support of the Cycling Podcast for another year. Incredibly, they have supported us since the 2016 Giro d'Italia. And as we approach our 10th anniversary in June, Science in Sport have been with us for seven of those 10 years. We really wouldn't be where we are today without them. Science in Sport itself has been around since 1992, so they've just celebrated their 30th anniversary. It's a big year coming up for them because they've partnered with Freddie Ovette, the British-born Australian athlete, son of Steve Ovette, of course, the 1980 Olympic 800 metres champion. 
Freddie has featured in the cycling podcast many times over the years, so I'm sure we'll be hearing more from him this season as his career pivots towards gravel. He's planning to do a string of top gravel events this year, including Unbound in the USA and the UCI Gravel World Championships, which will be held in September. We heard from Freddie in an episode called The Stagiaire Story way back in 2018, November 2018 in fact, when he had been riding for the BMC racing team as a stagiaire. Since then he's raced on the road of course, he's done virtual racing and now he is setting his sights on the gravel scene and well science in sports stock in trade is helping endurance athletes in any sport to fuel their performance. We'll be hearing a lot more from Science in Sport over the coming weeks and months. But in the meantime, go to scienceinsport.com to see their full range of products. Cycling's taken up a third of my life. I want to focus on my other loves, animals, nature. I've always wanted to use what nature gives us to make things honey, grow fruit and vegetables. I'll open a guest house, do some trail running and cross-country skiing, which will help my hyperactivity. Dan, who was that? Well, it's obvious who it was. Come yeah, on. I know. Tebow know him well, out, yeah. Oh, Tebow. Well, we've been talking about we've been talking about retirement, and we were rocked, as I said in the first part this week, by the news that Tebow Pino will probably, well, ninety nine point nine percent certain that he will retire at the end of the year. Um, that quote was from a fascinating interview he did with Lekeep um, on the day after the announcement, and well, it was a sort of typical Tebow Pino interview um, lots of what might seem contradictory emotions a lot of it really sort of condensed a lot of what has really captured the imagination about Thibaut Pino and made him so beloved to so many fans particularly talking for example about the 2019 Tour de France and the sort of psychodrama of the 2019 Tour de France the tour that we thought he was on course to win before he got injured in the Alps and he said I if I'm able to live the life I dream of now it's also because I didn't win 2019 tour my life would have changed too much which is why I have no regrets I never wanted to have the life of a champion I would have become a public figure really famous and I didn't want that Dan Tebow says he's looking forward to real life or beginning real life he had a taste of it in the lockdown in 2020 he had a few months where he wasn't constrained obliged to think of exactly what he was eating what he was doing he could enjoy his farm and his animals and so on and so forth and he says that that whetted his appetite and has ultimately prompted him to decide that he's going to end his career um, at the end of 2023 what did you make of the announcement uh, i mean i i think i've seen it coming for a while because i've known tebow for a uh, for a long time and i've always had a lot of contact with him um yeah he's a he's an enigma he's a he's yeah it, i mean he's he does cycling the old way you know and it's kind of like it's what i was saying earlier it's it's very much he was very he was successful 10 years ago in, in the Tour de France and that when he didn't have to be this all-consumed cyclist, you know, the, the, your life didn't have to revolve around the bike. You could go training and then come back and then do a bit of gardening or whereas now the, the, the sport's become so intense that you need to tick every box. You need to be on it every single aspect, nutrition, training, rest, recovery, going to altitude and he's he sounds like he's in a very similar position to myself whereby he just, he he yeah it's just not for him anymore and like he's i mean it's interesting because we could have obviously maybe we should have touched it when mitch was mitch was still on but 
I think that COVID lockdown made the decision, it made a lot of riders reflect on on life in general because it gave it gave us an opportunity to have a sustained period of time at home and if you enjoyed it or not and obviously some riders they kind of went oh no i want to continue my career a long time because i want i enjoyed the atmosphere of being away from home and traveling and being on training camp and other guys myself included and obviously clearly tebow it triggered a thing saying actually this is kind of nice it's it's actually nice being in one place for for two straight months or three months even you know so it was um yeah it as i said he's he seems to he's found something we all start cycling because we love it and we enjoy it and it just seems that he's found something that he enjoys more than cycling in this period of his life and he wants to go do that and that's that that's a really nice place to be in dan i always sense a bit of a disconnect between how fellow pros feel about Tebow and how the public feels about Tebow. I mean, I think he's a popular enough guy. He's popular not least because, you know, he's one of these guys who says hello to people, he's polite, and and some riders in the Peloton are also fans and they almost watch the sport through the eyes of fans. But there are other riders, I've spoken to many of them over the year years, who are kind of a bit fed up of this Tebow Pino psychodrama. Um they see a lot of other contemporaries who are stoic, who never complain, who never have these big highs and lows and just get on with their job for years and years and they would love to have the ability that Thibaut Pino has um, but they don't and they'll never earn as much as him they'll never win as much as him and they are slightly slightly more lukewarm about Thibaut Pino would you say that's fair? For sure I think it, I think it really displays a lack of understanding of psychology in the sport because very often people are just judged on their physical talent and it's actually the psychology of a rider and the mental aspect that adds up to a lot of results and for sure yeah Tebow is one of the most talented riders of this, of this generation but once he finished on that podium in the Tour de France the pressure just got to him and unfortunately he wasn't in in an environment he wasn't surrounded by the people to get the most out of him on a psychological level because they just simply wanted to work on the uh, on the on the physical side and you just see it, it's just it's just assumed that you can almost deal with the psychological part deal with the the difficulties that he was going through and it obviously we don't know we don't have any first-hand knowledge of that but it seems from the outside that you could just see this incredibly talented individual with his talent going to waste because he's in turmoil because of the level of expectation and pressure that he had on his shoulders not only like obviously leading the biggest arguably the biggest French team to try and win the biggest French race. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, but yeah, he, he still had, he still managed to have a great career, but that lack of results in France, I think that's a clear signal that it was the, it was psychological. Yeah. There was a, a big difference between his results, particularly in Italy, he performed exceptionally well in Italy and, um, the the Giro d'Italia has always been a bit of a, 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 a favourite race of his, and that's one reason why well, that's his big goal, really. The GC of the Giro. It was interesting in that interview as well um, to hear him or read about him making the distinction between you know winning stages, winning races in breakaways, and winning a la pedal. He's this sort of he has this kind of fundamentalist attitude to cycling, and and. You know, you talk about the expectation that other people put on him. He, he's put a huge amount of pressure on himself in that he expects the gold standard. He expects himself to be not 
just one of the best climbers in the world, but pretty much the best climber in the world. And he wants to be winning races from the front group, the elite group, not to be going down the road and winning at the end of a 120k break, as he did on a couple of occasions um, last year. But he's he's tortured in that sense as well, isn't he? That he can't really cut himself any slack, um, contrary to this idea that maybe someone who has 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 not tested himself challenged himself in the way that he should have done it definitely resonates with myself because i i realized after riding obviously did gc the giro in 21 and then riding just for stage victories in the 21 tour de france similar to 2020 after my injury and it made me realize that i I wasn't willing to make the sacrifice required to be a gc contender anymore because that involves months away from home at altitude training camps etc etc but then i wasn't like the stage hunting roles didn't really do it for me. I, I really, really enjoyed the buzz of the consistency of riding a general classification, that concentration and intensity that you need to keep up every single day. And that's, that was always the weakness of Tebow, in my opinion. You know, he wanted to be a GC rider and be this guy being, being like up there every single day. But he didn't have the concentration and focus levels to be able to sustain a challenge over three weeks. And it was, uh, it, again, it, as you say, it comes down to being, he wanted to be something that like in a different environment, potentially he was capable of or with different support or yeah, just the, the but I mean, the, the fact that people take a dislike into him for a psychological weakness, I mean, that sums a lot of the sport up because you're written off very quickly. And instead of people wanting to help him be the best and be go where he wanted to be, where he was clearly capable of going he uh he gets written off very quickly and it's um but yeah i mean he's he's going to be missed because it, again he's he's not calculating as you say he rides with his heart on his sleeve he a la pedal as he says and it, it's he attacks when he not when it makes sense but when he wants to attack when he feels it, he rides on instinct and there's not many riders like that anymore Dan, he stayed at the same team for his whole career. I mean, I don't necessarily believe that it would have made that much difference if he had moved. There were times in his career, there was talk at one stage of Dave Brailsford wanting to groom a uh, a French Tour de France winner. There was talk that he might go to Ineos, but he never did leave um, Groupama FDJ. I mean, you still hear all these cliches and Marijn Zeman, the Jumbo Visma um, coach and direct sportive last year, he gave an interview with L'Equipe in which he talked about how French teams were well behind. But I think that Groupama FDJ, I mean, I know, I know Thibaut's brother, Julien, very well, and he's in a sort of sports science department there, which I, I think from my sort of layman's perspective has been, is pretty well developed and pretty on the ball, but it would have been interesting nonetheless, wouldn't it, to see Pino somewhere else, even for a couple of years. Um, even if ultimately it wouldn't have changed that much. Yeah, I mean, you just learn stuff about yourself when you change teams. And it, but there is that, there's, there is always that period, that process of uh, getting used to your new environment. And he's, um, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> we can't change what's happened now, but you say David Godou, he finished fourth in the Tour de France. So you don't get there by being uh, in a team that's behind. And it's, uh, I think what a lot of the, obviously, a lot of the French teams, they're scrapping for, they don't have the budgets of the bigger teams, like, like Jumbo Visma and Ineos and, and UAE. So it's, it's, it's maybe more to do with that than it is a philosophy thing, a mentality thing. But at the same time, like it's, uh, FDJ are doing a great job. 
with their, their talent development, their scouting, and then they're, uh, they're really pushing the limits. And they say, we've got to do finishing fourth. They're right there. And, uh, but I mean, Tebow was obviously happy where he was. And if you're in that position where, what, what would you change it? You know, he felt supported. He felt, he probably felt like it was family and that's what he needed. That's what he thought he needed to get the best out of him. But sometimes by going out of your comfort zone, I mean, it's, it's kind of like, as I hate to talk about myself, but like in, in Garmin again, it's, it's, I left a quick step and it really, it, it, it introduces a whole new, different set of rules of different set, a different environment. You know, you just it's it's a different it's a different approach. That's the thing. It's uh, and it just makes you question everything you do, and and that's important. Yeah, I mean, I guess even if you're you end up throwing out a lot of the new ideas that you're getting in new teams, at least you have experienced them, and at least you have the choice. Whereas he has been in the same environment and exposed to the same ideas in effect um, throughout his whole career um dan i think that just about concludes the entertainment for today i mentioned the pod live event on the 12th of february you'll find details on how to order tickets for that in the show notes um dan it's not quite the end because well we've on many occasions tried to sum up the sort of mystique and as i said the psychodrama that is tebow pino in the podcast and we we gave it a good go i think last year in june and for those who want to listen um it's not really a treat i would say it's more of a nadir a nadir not only for this podcast but the whole genre of podcasting certainly a, a musical nadir for those who want to listen and um, we're going to play out with that lionel and i talking about tebow pino in june last year i think after he'd won or it was in april in fact after he'd won a stage at the tour of the alps so um look forward to that or don't um depending on 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 where you sit on Thibaut Pino. But Dan, I'm going to thank you and we'll see you in February, if not before. And um, yeah, thank you very much. Cheers. Well, this had um, Lionel, a lot of people very excited and a lot of people very happy and another contingent of people asking, what is it about Thibaut Pino that gets people so excited and gets people so emotional? I mean, there, there are several reasons. I sort of, on, on the back of a fag packet, came up with a few reasons. I mean, one was beautifully summed up by um, a colleague of ours, uh, Pierre Carré, on L'Equipe Television. This clip sort of went viral the other day. It, it was beautifully summed up. And, and he sort of said that Pino is fluent, really, in the universal language of emotion and heartache. I mean, that's a language that most of us are more fluent in than, you, you know, euphoria and success. And... Um, Pino has he's articulated this so transparently, beautifully throughout his career, through great highs like his stage win in his debut tour in 2012, to his descending yips the following year, near misses at the Giro, um, then the tour he should have won, really, in 2019, and the dark times that followed after that. Um, as Mark Maddio said a few years ago, support this rider because he's different. He'll make you cry. Sometimes you'll be sad, but he'll also lift you right up to the ceiling. His wins will taste different from the rest. Um, another aspect to it is, I think, it's the historical context. I mean, when Pino emerged, um, we were talking about a time at the beginning of the last decade when French cycling had lived not only with the pain of sort of not measuring up to its heritage in terms of results, but worse than that in their eyes, the, the injustice of trying to compete on an uneven playing field against riders who were still hooked on drugs that sort of poisoned the sport for for two decades and Pino was the first hint that things were changing that um again in sort of in franchise good would triumph over evil in the end I think I think there's a bit of that in there and there's his sort of disdain for social media he's a bit of a technological kind of luddite I think people enjoy that there was a great column 
Ian, he did some columns with West France earlier this year and probably the most memorable passages for me was when he talked about his terror, the terror that he experienced on New Year's Eve because he knew that it would be flooded with messages, people wishing him a happy new year and he was, he, was, uh, he was in turmoil about how he would respond to these messages, when he would respond to them. Um, so I think people, some people identif- identify with that. You know, he's yearning for simple pleasures in life. Um, you know, he's a guy who um, enjoys the, the outdoors and nature and um, less so sort of mobile phones and technology, that kind of thing. I think that there's sort of an honesty as well. Lionel, you and, you and I will, will relate to this. In his kind of immaturity um, <laughs> is a sort of implicit acknowledgement that he's no right to get frustrated about winning bike races, which are, you know, they're only one of the more important meaningless things in our lives um but he, he sort of acknowledges that you can't really negotiate with powerful emotions sometimes immature emotions you know you can't really negotiate with it if you if you if you're inclined towards petulance it's very difficult to override that isn't it i mean he knows that he shouldn't sulk at times but he does sulk um you know i've heard other riders over the last few months and years grouse about how much he earns and say he's a sort of hypochondriac and should just get on with things but I think he'd probably acknowledge some of that himself, but it doesn't really, it doesn't change what he feels and he's kind of, he's authentic in that regard. I, I think finally, you know, it's a very potted summary of this, but I think one last rubric, maybe a sort of an aesthetic one. He kind of looks dynamic, aggressive on the bike. Um, and also in this age of obligatory helmets, he's one of the few riders whose face is kind of instantly recognisable. He's got a really distinctive sort of, Five o'clock shadow. He's you know he's a he's a handsome chap. He's very he's very expressive on the bike. And again, it's there's a kind of transparency about the way he wears his emotions quite physically. I think. Um, also, I would say that the 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 outpouring on social media there was there's a bit of sarcasm and irony about it. Would you not agree? Well, I mean, I suppose because he came so close and then it all unraveled. And when it does unravel for him, as it has done on a number of occasions in the Grand Tours, it does so spectacularly, doesn't it? I mean, that stage win in the Tour of the Alps, stage five, was his first win since the 2019 Tour de France. I mean, it's a long old drag. 1,007 days. Indeed. 1,007 days. Just, uh, I mean, just watching Bardet win overall and Pino win the stage, I did think that maybe the 2006 16 Tour de France was going to get on the phone and ask for its storylines back, but um, well, I thought, yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, you know that I'm a, a, a devoted Pino, Pino acolyte, don't you? Indeed, indeed. I think it's important to keep all of these things in perspective. A 114-kilometer stage of the Tour of the Alps does not make a summer. I mean, if you can put the other 3,300 kilometers together oh, in on, July, man. then fair Lionel. enough. It's coming home. It's coming home. Il est de retour au sommet. Il est de retour. Thibaut Pinot, oui. Thibaut Pinot remporte son étape. It's coming. Cycling's coming home. Ça revient. Come on, Lionel, sing along. Come on, sing with me. Come on, Lionel. Everyone seems to know the score. They've heard it all before. They just know. They're so sure. The Tebow's gonna blow it away, gonna throw it away, just a hipster bar day. But I remember four leaves on a shirt, Mario still screaming, a thousand days of pearl. Never stop me dreaming. Come on, Lionel, some of the next bit came from a listener. Um, it's not the most poetic tribute to Richard, but it's a tribute nonetheless that you have to sing. 
So many memes, so many sneers But all those oh so nears Weigh you down through the years But I still hear the laughing by more And when Daniel was bored, Lionel melting at the tour And Francois singing four leaves on a shirt Look, he knows he's beaming A thousand days of hurt but after all that, maybe it is coming home, Daniel. But I mean, I, I now know why we're taking a week off from the regular podcast this week. I know. I think that's. I think we've all had quite enough. We have. Good we'll, night. We'll be back for the Giro d'Italia. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore. Daniel Freeb and Lionel Burney.